From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. The new border law passed by China on October 23rd has raised concerns in India. Encapsulating these concerns, former Foreign Secretary Sham Saran tells my colleague diplomatic editor Indrani Bakchi that China is essentially using a legal instrument to reinforce its territorial claims, which shows a hardening of its position and has adverse impact for the future of India-China border negotiations. In brief, China has declared its border regions as sacred and inviolable and in a process of resettling populations in these regions, it seeks to weaponize the settler population to enforce its boundary claims. Last week, India cautioned China by asking it to avoid undertaking actions under the pretext of this law which could unilaterally alter the situation in the India-China border region. Here, in this episode, we demystify the complexities of these laws. China's new boundary law, um, it, has, um, it has raised concerns in India. The, the government has um, officially uh, made a statement and has uh, articulated its concerns. Uh, how do you see uh, the, the, the boundary law and what do you think are its implications for India? In one sense, it is a kind of a formalization of uh, what uh, has actually been uh, the policy of the Chinese government in managing its borders. What it does is to give um, a a, uh, sort of a legal basis on which to uh, do things like recently setting up of, uh, say, border villages. well, some people have called it uh, dual-use villages, but you may have seen reports that actually fairly substantial villages have been set up uh, in territory which is claimed by Nepal, in territory which is claimed by Bhutan. There has been activity on the eastern sector in India. Uh, so it is, uh, in a sense, uh, providing a kind of a legal basis for a lot of the new activities which we are seeing uh, at the border. One point of concern that I have is that um, uh, in some recent uh, articulation of China's position on the border, particularly with India, and which is also reflected here in the law, you know, the uh, Chinese frontiers are said to be, uh, in a sense, sacred and inviolable. Um, And that uh, this is a matter of uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty. Now, when you uh, pose uh, the issue uh, in those terms, it diminishes the space for compromise, isn't it? Because if you consider your claim as actually part of your sovereign territory, uh, then it becomes much more difficult to find uh, compromise. And this you saw with respect to Galwan, uh, because when uh, the differences arose, Uh, They said that Galwan is Chinese sovereign territory, which means that (laughs) there is no room for, uh, you know, compromise. uh, Correct. So that is one uh, concern I have that, uh, in a sense, the room for coming to an understanding 
uh, and, and resolving the border issue, uh, that will become somewhat more complicated than it has already uh, is. Uh, so that's, that's uh, the point I, I would like to make. Uh, of course, uh, the law, as I think the Chinese foreign ministry has uh, pointed out, it also has a clause that uh, with on the principle of equality and mutual trust and friendly consultation, you know, we can uh, deal with border related affairs and uh, we can also, uh, you know, try to resolve disputes. But uh, overall, I would say uh, that uh, it is through a legal instrument uh, in a sense, you are reinforcing China's uh, territorial uh, claims and uh, you are putting it more in the context of uh, safeguarding sovereignty uh, rather than something that, you know, is both sides agree that, yes, there is a difference of opinion and we need to resolve that. Uh, so to that extent, there is a hardening of position. When they say sacred and inviolable and that it is there, it is a duty to uh, to use all methods, including combat, the villages then become armed posts. I, if you look at say the Chinese Coast Guard law, Coast Guard I law. mean Coast Guard is not really part of armed forces. It is, it is more parliamentary kind of a, a force mm -hmm. and law and order uh, related force. Uh, but uh, if you see the Coast Guard law, uh, then you will see that. Uh, uh, with the being given the authority to use lethal force in order to safeguard, you know, Chinese uh, interests or Chinese territorial, you know, claims, uh, you are essentially making the Coast Guard a arm of the uh, arm. PLA. PLA. Yes. And uh, this was also institutionally sort of confirmed by putting the Coast Guard. Uh, in fact, under the uh, uh, People's Armed Constabulary, which is under the Central Military. And here, of course, as you see, the border guarding forces are the PLA and also the People Arms Police, the same. same. And uh, they will work together with local authorities, uh, provincial authorities and village authorities. Uh, so, yes, I think uh, the fact that uh, you have this law, um, we should expect more activism uh, on the India-China border. We have already been seeing activism on the India-China border. I would suspect that you know this may uh, be intensified in the uh, days uh, to come. What, in your view, is uh, should be India's response uh, on the ground? I mean, obviously, diplomatically, there is something that there are things that we can do uh, and we are doing. But on the ground, what do you see that we should do? Uh, as far as the uh, situation on the ground is concerned, currently there is no option but to hold the line in a sense. That is, uh, we can't throw them out. We simply do not have the capability of actually going about violently uh, seeking the vacation of territory which we say is ours and has been you know, infringed upon by them. Uh, so if that is not possible for the time being, then the only thing that you can do is to make certain that further ingress is not possible. To that extent, the decisions which are being taken, number one, to beef up our forces on the border, as well as to maintain them, say, through winter, even though that's a very difficult uh, you know, exercise, very costly as well. Uh, this is something that uh, there is no option, but we, we have to uh, do that. Uh, the longer term, 
you know, what should we be thinking in terms of how do we deal with this kind of a new situation on the border? And there, I think we have to, uh, depends on how defensive you want to be or how, you know, uh, in, a, in a sense, um, you know, are you ready to push the envelope somewhat? Uh, what we have uh, pointed out, uh, if you see in the document we produced uh, in 2012, you know, the non-alignment 2.0, uh, recently, we have come out with another India's path to power. Uh, and there, what we have said is that, look, uh, for the Chinese, these kind of incursions in their way of thinking are low risk, low cost. You know, I mean, you are not paying much of a price uh, for this, in a sense. Uh, so how do you create a situation where they do have to pay a price? And it is not so low risk. So partly, of course, the response from the Indian side was uh, somewhat unexpected for them. But, you know, it did not give us the kind of uh, bargaining chips in order to uh, force going back to the uh, status quo. Uh, but an indication of what could work was what happened in South uh, Pankunso. It is because we had something to bargain with that we were able to uh, you know, achieve some uh, kind of a disengagement. Now, if I take that as as an indication, then there are large parts of the India-China border uh, where somewhere they are in a better position, in a better terrain. We are in a better position in many uh, sectors. So is it possible for us to really create a strategy whereby Whenever there is some provocation like this, we have the ability to instantly, you know, also create uh, a, a ingress on the on the uh, other side, so that you have something to bargain with, you know, and that requires, of course, restructuring of some of your border forces capability. It, they have to be, uh, you know, quick action forces. They have to be very, you know, almost like commando-like forces, small, very swift well-armed, who can do this kind of, a, kind of a thing. But without that, unless you create a situation where the other side thinks twice before engaging in this, uh, I'm afraid uh, this situation where is likely to uh, continue. Because if you look at it from the Chinese point of view, if you're sitting in Beijing, you know, doing this, you are keeping the Indians off balance, you are creating a situation where they have to spend much more money on defense, uh, you know, they are stretched out along a very, very long border. You know, they think it is hardly any risk. Uh, yes, the Indians will try to resist. They have tried to, you know, stop us from coming in further. But, you know, the, the, the there is a huge asymmetry on the border still. So you have to think in terms of ways in which you can overcome that asymmetry or at least, you know, diminish that asymmetry. This also affects Bhutan. And uh, uh, which in turn has some impl implications for us as well. Um, Bhutan and uh, China uh, recently announced that they have a, they've started a three-step uh, process on the boundary. Um, how does this affect them, and uh, what do you make of that? Since you know both very well. Well, I don't know what the three steps are. <laughs> Uh, you know uh, what are they? Uh, what are they looking at? The from my understanding is that uh, the Chinese have been using the border issue with Bhutan uh, also to try and see whether they can get the Bhutanese to uh, 
allow them to, for example, have a embassy in uh, Thimpu uh, to open up uh, border trade, for example, between Tibet and uh, Bhutan, uh, and we give them a much larger you know, presence like they have, for example, in Nepal or they have in some other, you know, neighboring countries. This is a gap in a sense, you know, and um, uh, it is a very difficult uh, situation for uh, Buddha, uh, no doubt about it. But I would say that, uh, you know, uh, people should not think that Bhutan is unable to conclude a border agreement with uh, China, mainly because there is an Indian problem. You know, that India is standing in the way. Uh, that is not quite uh, the case uh, because uh, the Bhutanese also have, if you look historically, where have they been invaded from? <laughs> where have they seen in history, uh, you know, attempts at domination? Well, from Tibet side. So those memories are still there that, you know, if you open up, uh, you know, you could you could you could have a situation where uh, the uh, the kind of uh, identity which Bhutan has, uh, that identity might get uh, sort of uh, eroded. Uh, so there are also concerns of that kind in Bhutan. But I will uh, acknowledge that uh, I see uh, there is a shift in public opinion in Bhutan, particularly elite. Bhutan opinion, where quite, I suppose, uh, naturally, people believe that, you know, if we can get assistance from uh, China to build up our infrastructure, if we can get access to this huge market uh, that China has, already Bhutan uh, gets a large amount of revenue from Chinese tourism. This has become a big uh, money spinner for uh, many uh, Bhutanese. Uh, so given the kind of economic benefits that can accrue uh, at least theoretically to uh, Bhutan, I'm not surprised that there are strong uh, views that, you know, why are we getting caught in a crossfire between <laughs> India and uh, China? Now, this is what points to a much greater engagement by India with all the different constituencies, different sources of public opinion in Bhutan. Because it's not just that you deal with uh, just, uh, you know, his majesty or with the, you know, government, uh, you know, there are many other constituencies which are becoming quite influential. And I think it is very important for India in terms of how do we deal with the China challenge? Uh, one, you have to give them some space, but at the same time, you have to make sure that your interests uh, and vital interests are not undermined by uh, what uh, happens between Bhutan and China. I, I, and I do believe that Bhutan is very conscious of this, uh, this uh, situation. So this requires deft <laughs> diplomacy. It requires, you know, constant uh, engagement, a much broader engagement than we have had so far. There, there is a, the, a larger question that one asks about she and the nature of the Chinese leadership. Uh, <clears throat> we, I mean, it's not like she has op he has opened up just a, a front with India. He's opened up a front with pretty much everybody uh, around him. And uh, I mean, just last week's um, the military drills between with Russia, Russia with Russia uh, in Japan and off Japan's coast um, could be a could point to something, uh, a, a different kind of uh, um, challenge uh, with Australia. He's, the, the, I, I noticed that 
the oil rigs are back uh, going towards Indonesia uh, and Philippines. Uh, so what's the game? What's his big game? Well, you know, there are, there are two uh, parallel uh, kind of uh, drivers uh, of Chinese behavior. Uh, one driver is a sense uh, that uh, our capabilities have now reached a point where we can translate what our objectives are on the ground. Uh, and this is, this is now possible. And, and the ability of those who could oppose us uh, their ability to do so has diminished and the will has diminished. You know, I mean, it's not only a question of capability, but there is a constant, you know, uh, sort of focus on, you know, how in the United States of America, there is no longer a will to power. Uh, you know, uh, so the way they are interpreting uh, American withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan is that, you know, they just simply do not have the stomach for the fight. <laughs> as it were. Uh, so one is that sense of, and, and arrogance, you know, you know, in a, in a sense. But with this, in the same uh, breath, there is also this huge expression of insecurity. A sense that we are threatened by everyone. You know, so if you see what is happening in the East China Sea, it is very much related to a, a growing sort of apprehension that their objective of taking over Taiwan, which is a very important part of the China dream, the very important part of what they are able to achieve by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the PRC. Uh, we should not underestimate what importance the unification of Taiwan has for uh, China. And today they know that what has happened in Hong Kong recently, the one country, two system model is dead. That is, I think, the ability to persuade the Taiwanese that there is somehow space for them to continue for a considerable period of time with their lifestyles, with their political institutions, even their armed forces. You know, I mean, they had offered that within the one country, two systems, you could even keep your armed forces as long as you accept uh, sovereignty by China. Uh, so there is a sense that that will no longer work. So what is the option? The only option is a forcible occupation you know and so if you see the developments which have been taking place in chinese military over the last several years you will see how much focused it is on this aspect of you know uh, how do we make sure that we have overwhelming force available uh, should the eventuality arise uh, to uh, really uh, take over uh, taiwan now in that context some of the actions which are being taken by, say, the United States, uh, you know, they have been talking about strategic ambiguity, but that ambiguity has become a little less ambiguous, isn't it? I mean, they have been training uh, Taiwanese forces. They are willing to sell much more arms to uh, uh, Taiwan. Uh, and if you look at the AUKUS, you know, the Australia, uh, UK and US uh, submarine deal, you know, these submarines have nothing to do with coastal defense or near sea defense for Australia. They only make sense for force projection quite far away from Australian shores. And what is that, uh, what is that uh, sort of security scenario they are looking at? It's Taiwan. 
you know so uh, there is the sense also in uh, china that we are getting hemmed in that you know our uh, ability uh, to uh, really resolve this problem once for all as we have been able to do with uh, hong kong this is might be slipping away so this is why i am saying that there are these two parallel trends contradictory trends and sometimes one <laughs> comes to the fore sometimes the other comes to the fore but this is for this very reason i believe that if there is any issue on which there could be a dangerous escalation of confrontation between the us and china and then inevitably drawing in other powers it is the taiwan uh, issue and uh, you have seen statements saying that maybe in the next 5 years or 6 years uh, this should become a reality i i think that's perhaps the most uh, uh, shall i say uncertain and uh, factor of instability in the region and this will of course as you would imagine this would change the <laughs> the whole geopolitical situation Today's episode is produced by Arun George, Jairad Singh, and Sunay Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet dot in.